Good morning, everyone. The housing market tightens further is the title of today's Alaska Economic Trends article we'll be discussing, prepared by the Department of Workforce and Labor Development in their Research and Analysis Unit. Economist Rob Krieger joins us. Good morning. Hi, Kevin. So, in the first paragraph, you lay out three key factors affecting the housing market. Tell us about that. Well, I think kind of a little background first. So, like, what we're this particular article, we took a look at full year 2021, and it's a little bit um, dated at this point because there's been so much happening within the first quarter and the second quarter of the year. But what we found out in 2021, it was basically a kind of continuation of the kind of tight market that we saw in the second half of 2020. We had low inventory, you had really high demand, I think spurred by record low interest rates, all kind of creating this situation where you have, um, you know, very few homes for sale and lots of buyers competing for those homes. And as a result, you're getting things like bidding wars and lots of competition. Um, that kind of dynamic sent sales prices up over 9% from um, from the prior year and pushed average sales prices up to about 389,000 statewide. And that's just for a single family home. Yes, we're talking specifically about single family homes in this particular article, and that's generally what we do for most of our research. Okay, so if I wanted to move to Alaska, what would be my cheapest option and what would be my most expensive? Well, Juno came in at the top of the list for 2021 at over, um, is that about 476,000 for a single family home in Juneau. Down towards the, the um, Fairbanks tends to be the kind of one of the more less expensive options um, at around 322. Um, but Juno, Anchorage, Bethel, and Ketchikan all came out with sales prices over $420,000. And what did that average end up being in the state? Statewide, Statewide. that's about 389000 Okay. And what about interest rates? They've been low last year, but what are we seeing now? Right. So interest rates have been at record lows starting at about the third quarter of 2020, and that continued on through 2021. Um, rates for the full year 2021 averaged below 3%, and that's a record low. Um, but when you start to look at individual quarters within 2021, rates started to come off those lows in the third and fourth quarter of the year. And in first quarter 2022, which is the earliest, where this is the most recent data we have available, we saw rates come up to 3.34. But the important thing to remember about rates is that um, they really started to, to come up in April, and even recently, nationally, um, have exceeded 6%. So um, a lot of what's happening now in recent months is not captured in our data, and we probably won't have a good sense of that um, until later in the summer, because our survey um, won't have that information available until then. So it could increase further than that. I think it's, well, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, but when you consider um, where we're at and how much things have risen nationally, I think it's probably reasonable to expect rates to kind of average out around 5% for second quarter in, this, in Alaska. And so could you expand on why it's reasonable to expect that? Well, I think one of the kind of the best indicators of where mortgage rates are headed is to look at um, yields on 10-year on, um, treasury notes. And Yields on treasury notes don't drive interest rates, they just tend to have a relationship. So it acts as like a benchmark. Um, and what we've seen historically, when you compare the interest rate from our survey to yields on 10-year treasury notes, the difference, the spread between those two is about 1.6 percentage points or 160 basis points. So if that historical 
pattern holds true. And as of today, rates were average. Uh, I'm sorry, yields were averaging about 3.45 percent. Um, just when before we came over here today, I took a quick look, and yes, yeah, yields have been spiking. Mm-hmm. Um, if that historical pattern holds true, then you could potentially be seeing well over five percent in recent in, in the coming weeks, if we're not there yet. And so, how does interest rates affect affordability? So I think one of the, the key factors driving all the activity in recent months has been the fact that people are really wanting to take advantage of those low rates. And even when you have sales prices rising at a level that they have been, um, when you consider how low interest rates, it really does make the monthly payment more manageable. And some people might say, well, it's not manageable and it may not be for them. But when you consider how in, how a mortgage works, that interest rate right now is really critical in, I think, um, what's been happening lately. But we took a look in the article to see what various rate scenarios would have on affordability. Mm-hmm. And once you get to about 5.25%, which I think is a realistic possibility, um, it takes almost the monthly wages of one person plus half of another person to be able to afford the average priced home. Okay. So every, I guess, yeah, every increment at current prices and at current wages, every time you see rates come up, it's going to wane on affordability. And so back to the home buyer hypothetical here. I make an average wage in the state and have a 30-year mortgage. I make the monthly payments. Could I do it with just one job in the state? There are places around the state where things are definitely more affordable. It varies um, by community then. It does, and it's it's significant. Um, Bethel, for example, is tends to come out as the least affordable place. Um, and even though um, prices are not as high as they are in Juneau. Um, wages are much lower there, so housing is actually less affordable in a place like Bethel. Um, Juneau is actually more affordable. Um, but, yeah, if you're talking about a place in the state that has kind of the, the most favorable affordable options, actually one of the ones that comes back year over year is the um, option of working in Anchorage and living in Matsu. Mm-hmm. And under that scenario, it's about maybe a little over one person to afford the average price more, I'm sorry, the average price home because um, wages in Anchorage are much higher than they are in Matsu and real estate in Matsu is much cheaper than it is in Anchorage. Oh, so folks can get the money in Anchorage and right. pay for it over, okay. Yeah, and that's probably in Alaska the, 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 the closest thing to a lower 48 commute where you go from the suburb to the city. And I hear of increased wages though and so did my friends the last couple of years. How is that factored in? Wages are, are tricky, um, and there certainly have been, you know, as a result of kind of the, the worker shortage, you know, employers are in some cases raising wages. Um, but in, in, in as far as affordability goes, um, even, you know, whether wages were to increase significantly or not, it's really the interest rate component that's, that's driving what's making things affordable at this point. So... At an interest rate of 3%, my payments still cost slightly above what I make on average. But what happens if that rate is pushed further up? We explain that. You explain that a little bit. Yeah, if you if every every increase if it in gets rate, to 5%. Yeah, if you if I think on our on our exhibit, if you when you get to 5.25%, an interest rate of 5.25%, given the current sales price and given current wages 
when you adjust that interest rate component of that index, um, it takes about 1.5 incomes to afford the average price home. So that's that's a pretty significant jump from where we're at now. And in places where it takes more than one person already, then that could be you know an even even bigger challenge. I think which. Uh, uh, Juno is one of those places already. Juno tends to be among the more expensive. In, um, it's I think in this particular cycle in 2021, it was about 1.4. So that means the wages of one person and 40% of another to afford the average price home. And uh, fo- folks were protected during the pandemic from foreclosures. What has been the impact from that? Yeah, foreclosures have been kind of interesting because, yeah, during the pandemic, you know, it's a, it's a measure that we've been tracking for many years, and it's usually a pretty sensitive indicator. Um, it, it, it's, we, we have an exhibit where it shows the number of foreclosures from back in the 80s and just the sheer volume um, that there were back then when the housing market crashed then. Um, but, like, in, in recent times, when the pandemic hit, we had... We went from fairly stable, normal level of what you'd see in foreclosures every year to almost none. And that was as a direct result of homeowners' protections during the pandemic. Um, We still haven't seen foreclosures come back to where they were, but it's for different reasons. Um, I think now, because the market's so hot, um, anyone who is kind of facing a foreclosure is kind of, um, you know, if they've missed payments and they have that kind of looming situation, I think now people can sell their house fast enough where they wouldn't have to go through that process and potentially make a profit while they're at it. Hmm. So as a result, we still see foreclosure numbers lower than they have been historically, but it's for different reasons than it was you know, two years ago. And so what can we expect going forward? Um, I think it's all about interest rates. That's the key thing to keep an eye on. Um, and um, it's, it's hard to say at what point um, rates rise and prices level off or start to come down. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question, but um, rates are going up and that is going to have an impact on the current trajectory of the market. So look out for Q2. Q2 will be important, but yeah, there's, we'll, we'll have to see what, um, you know, I, I don't, I honestly don't know what to expect in the data. Mm. Well, we'll be back with the next article after the break. Stay tuned. And we're back with the Alaska Department of Labor and Workforces Development, Workforce Development, Alaska Economic Trends. We are joined by economist Sarah Teal, who will share with us oil's recent wild ride. So, Sarah, let's kind of put this in perspective for folks. What is Alaska's share of oil production last year, or what was it? Well, last year, Alaska's share of oil production was um, 4%. It ranks fifth out of all of other states and areas that produce oil. Texas came in the highest at 43%, then the federal offshore Gulf of Mexico at 15%, New Mexico produced 11 and then North Dakota at 10, and then us. And so we know that this is governed a lot by the international demand, this oil, right? What does what the rest of the countries look like? For other countries, we actually produce the most oil out of every country as of 2020. That was the last year that was available. Um, And that was about almost 20%. In second place was Saudi Arabia at 11.6%. And at the time, it was Russia at 11.2%. Let's let's recap this 
wild ride. So from April of 2020 to now, where did oil price go? Well, in April of 2020, for the whole month, the Alaska North Slope crude price was $16.55 per barrel. In April of 2022, so exactly two years later, it went to $109.41 per barrel, which is a 561% increase. And, and, and that $16, where were we before 2020? Before 2020, uh, let's see here. We were roughly $60 a barrel. Okay. So for the impact, let's start with COVID because demand tanked in 2020. How did that impact oil? What did they have, what did they have to do in response, the industry? Well, when COVID hit, we had other things going on, too, that impacted the oil industry. So we had COVID hit, which really decreased demand because people were staying home and we weren't flying and we weren't going places. We weren't going to school or work. At the same time or right around there, there was a price war that was going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia where they were boosting oil production. They were fighting basically on... um, their share of the market in in uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. Also, what happened was the contracts for for in oil futures ex- ex- expired in a way that caused another glut, and so we had all of these things happening at the same time, which just caused a huge glut of supply, which made oil tank. And what happens when oil hits negative, like we saw? <laughs> what exactly is going on there? Well. What it really means is on paper is when a supplier of of oil sells, they would receive a, a money for their oil. But when it goes into the negative range, it actually means that that, that person has to pay somebody to take the oil off of them. Because mm. uh, they have to store it, I imagine, if we're getting at that point where demand is... For the physical product, yes. But sometimes with the futures market, it is not for the physical product. Mm. Okay. And with higher prices, one would wonder if the industry would be interested in the state. Yes. Um, Yes, except there are complications here. Alaska is unique here. So even though we have the higher oil prices, we still have... um, most of our oil projects here are are on the North Slope, and because that's so far from the, the the market, it is very expensive. It takes a lot of time to do the regulatory work and get everything in order. So you need a long lead time. So even if oil prices are high now, they may not be when the project comes online, if it gets that far. So there's a lot of risk involved. Yes. Well, there always is oh, when well. it's oil. Uh, of course. The industry will need folks to do this work, the drillers, the producers, the support staff. What did the picture look like for workers pre-pandemic and now for the oil industry? Well, let's see here. Um, we had a decline in the number of workers when we had a uh, recession um, in 2014 into 2015, and we were starting to recover that. And then when April 2020 hit, we had a 30% drop over a number of months. And we have recovered about 12% of those jobs. And these folks aren't coming cheap, are they? They are not. Um, A lot of people here are probably aware that the oil industry has the highest paying jobs, period, in the whole state. Even though we make up a very small share, in 2020, I believe we were about 2.2% of all jobs were in the oil industry. But overall... um, 
in 2021, all oil and gas jobs paid a little over $180,000 a year. And what is that before? Before it was 150 in 2019, so pre-pandemic. Huh. And so what, what, what job is paying that, that, that 180000 that would be all oil and, and, um, and oh, gas all. jobs. Yes. So oh, okay. the producing jobs, so oil companies and then drilling companies and then oil field support jobs. That's all of them. When you break it down, it is the lowest paying jobs are in the oil support, which in 2021 was almost 120,000. For drilling jobs, it was 124. And for producing jobs, it was um, up almost $262,000. And all of them have increased at least 10% since 2019. Now, in the article, you mentioned an interesting factor I had not taken into consideration, and that's automation. How has that impacted this this field? Well, I would say most companies are interested in automating because that helps reduce labor costs, but it, it definitely helps if you are in the oil oil business. And mm-hmm. so when you lose staff at the same time you are cutting costs there, and then you have to figure out how to produce with fewer people. Mm -hmm. And so they implement new technology that allows them to produce the same amount, but with fewer people. And so what, what has automation done so far for oil, would you say? Mm. Once you finish drilling, it will allow you to produce with minimal staff. You can just check your computer you know, um, software. You can see where you have changes in your production or your pressures. And then you can sort of do a bird's eye view instead of having somebody there. Uh, that so would be one example. So kind of the support staff in, in a way, huh? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the international question marks right now for oil? There are so many, Uh, (laughs) most definitely. Um, Internationally, I would say that the war in Ukraine is exacerbating oil prices. Mm. And that is probably going to reduce the amount of crude that's available on the global market. Okay. Which, it's simple supply and demand right there. In part, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. And I believe we have two projects in development in the state. Could you share with that? Well, we have two big projects. There's many projects going on, but these are the two two, two biggest ones right now. Um, there is the Pick a Project, which was discovered in 2013. It is owned by the Papua New Guinea company called Oil Search. And... Um, Sometime this year, they will, the state plans to issue its final investment decision. And if that's positive, then probably drilling will commence in 2023. And that's PICA. Uh-huh. PICA, PICA. PICA. I've heard both. Oh, okay. Well, let's go with PICA. And so then there's also Willow. Willow, which is owned by ConocoPhillips. They first acquired that in 1999. So they've known about it for quite some, some, some time. And their first exploration well was drilled in 2016. We know a little bit more about that one. They are anticipating about 160,000 barrels a day at its peak and a total of 450 to 800 million barrels of recoverable oil. They are 
they've been having some regulatory issues, which has hit the papers recently. Uh, but the Bureau of Land um, Management is conducting a supplemental environmental impact statement, which we expect to come out soon. And we believe maybe that um, construction might begin in the 2022 to 2023 drilling season, which would be during this coming up a winter. But that will depend on a new a record of decision. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I would actually. Um, while Alaska's share of oil production has declined over the years, somewhere around, right now it's, it's about two to 3%, the US's share of oil production over, overall has gone way up and that is because of shale drilling. And so that's something that people see a lot and that would be why, but we don't do that here. Oh, I see. It's more of a lower 48 thing. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And, and thank you again, Rob. Yeah, sure. These articles are up on the Department of Labor's website. So if you need even more about the wild ride oil went through, you can go there. And then, But that's the program. We'll be speaking with Juno Police on the next program. So be sure to tune into that. This is June 14th. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time on Action Line.